to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My guest today is Steve Herman. Steve Herman is a great trumpet player based here in Nashville, Tennessee. I met him through his connection to the Muscle Shoals Horns and we'll learn all about that here in a minute. So welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour, Steve. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So I would like to uh, start off our conversation in the beginning of, of your musical life. What were some of your earliest musical memories and how did that shape you wanting to become a musician? Well I actually started piano when I was six years old. I had um, two brothers who were four and five years older than me and they started getting piano lessons and I threw a temper tantrum because I wanted piano lessons too and everybody thought I was too young but actually I took right to it and, uh, and would probably still be playing piano to this day but I kind of, I had enough talent that I had a teacher that really wanted me to start doing drills and technique stuff. And I was just too immature. And so I, I quit, you know, and, uh, we had a trumpet laying around the house that my brother had tried to play for a while. And, uh, I thought just to make my parents happy instead of just quitting, I'd say, well, I'll play trumpet, you know? And so that was when I was 10 and 48 years later, <laughs> I'm still playing trumpet. Yeah, and you, you grew up in Ohio? Yep, uh, Hamilton, Ohio, just a little north of Cincinnati, in the southwest uh, corner of Ohio. So when did you realize that being a musician might actually be something you want to pursue as a, as a career? Well, I was always really good at, at playing trumpet, but I was far from any kind of prodigy and uh, had a pretty bad car wreck in high school, which I think really set me back because uh, I had some damage done to my face. Uh, and so I went from being a really promising early high school player to a pretty average senior in high school. But I, I wanted to go into music. I, I, I'd heard Miles Davis and I just loved those old Miles records. That was the first stuff. And then my, uh, but you know, I'd been listening to all different kinds of stuff. Listened to a lot of Chicago you know, back in the in the 70s, they were a big influence, I think, on just my trumpet sound, you know, and, and lead playing and, and maybe even arranging. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it never entered my mind, I think was the, the thing that I heard Miles play in that. And I went like, wow, that just grabbed me, you know. And uh, I had no idea what I was getting into, by the way. I had no idea that, you know, what the music business really entailed and what it was going to be like to be a professional musician. I just had this dream of, you know, becoming a jazz trumpet player. <laughs> yeah. Did you, uh, through high school, mainly play in school or did you also join any outside band or form any Me band? and some buddies tried to start a band, but I don't, I'm not even sure we ever played a gig. You know, uh, it was uh, kind of late. I think some of the, I think I was a junior, and, but several of the older guys, I mean, they were a year older, but then they, of course, graduated and went off to, college so that was kind of the end of the of that band uh, there's a recording of that band uh, our one song you know <laughs> that my buddy ray has and uh and uh so yeah we we were we were trying to do that but mostly i was just a regular public school educated you know trumpet player and, yeah. uh, i was taking lessons on the side and i should also say that i was and i think both my junior and senior years i was driving down to the university of cincinnati and studying with one of the the teaching assistants there uh that was probably mostly just during the summers, uh, but uh, studied with Paul Hilner there, and uh, he helped me quite a bit. But uh, you know, for when I showed up at North Texas uh, in uh, in '78, I was way behind. You know, the guys who had really gone to arts magnet schools, and <clears throat> of course, uh, you're also competing against guys who had been on the road 
or guys who were, you know, had already done their undergraduate work. You know, you were auditioning against all those guys. But it's North Texas is very much a horn player's school. So Big band you, you don't just get there either. Well, uh, it's it's not hard to get in the school. It's huge. And they're pretty much taking almost uh, anyone, especially if you were paying, you know, an out-of-state tuition. I wasn't on a scholarship or anything. So, uh, But it was still incredibly cheap to go to school there in 78. It was cheaper for me to pay out-of-state and go to North Texas than it was to go in-state in Ohio. And certainly much cheaper than, than Berkeley or Miami would have been. So it was, it was kind of a no-brainer as far as, you know, picking the school for me. Yeah, so, what were some of your early influences on the instrument? Well, like I said, Miles certainly grabbed me. Uh, uh, the the sound of the Chicago section. My dad even had some. Uh, I remember he had this record of the song of the Vogel Boatman, which I think was Glenn Miller, right? And uh, and I just loved that. And Clyde McCoy's Sugar Blues. I I you know I got my first Harmon Mute and you know tried to imitate that you know and and uh, and I was always really listening to uh, all kinds of, of music. We were. You know, really into, you know, the Southern rock bands in, in high school. Uh, we listened to Yes. We listened to Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. We were going to concerts down in Cincinnati quite a bit, seeing, you know, our favorite groups. We saw that Peter Frampton Comes Alive tour, you know, which I I still think is a, was kind of a really neat uh, bit of music, just the fact that it had so much soloing in it, you know, on, on that album. It wasn't just Peter Frampton singing, you know, it was you know, uh, really great keyboard solos by, I think the guy's name was Bob Mayo, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it was kind of a big jam kind of thing, which uh, uh, I just, I remember hearing that album played at night uh, on a radio station. They were saying, here's the new, you know, and I'm just going, oh, this is great. I went and bought it the next day, I'm sure. You know, so, and then I saw Emerson, Lake and Palmer's works tour before it folded up. I think it just kind of collapsed in the middle of the tour, but they made it to Cincinnati and, uh, you know, that was with 40, 50 musicians on stage. So that was amazing to hear that whole production. Yeah. So all those were big influences on, on me. How, how about some of your contemporaries and some of your fellow students? How was the exchange there? Did you, like, learn from each other a lot? Or because I know you got some into, into more like a Mexican-influenced scene while at college, too. How did, did that all happen? Well, that just was a, a, a gig that I got, and uh, I was I was happy to get it. I was playing five nights a week for five hours a night, and I made two hundred a week. But my rent was two hundred a month, you know. So all of a sudden, at twenty two years old, I finally have a gig, and I had kind of frittered away four years of school, and and so now I was able to, you know, finish school without my parents having to fork of any money they'd have gladly done it but I just felt good about being able to do that I felt I'm 22 I'm supposed to be working you know and I, I got I landed this one gig which led to a, a another gig that was only three nights uh, made a little bit less money but I could still easily get by and uh and so I was doing that gig and playing in the one o'clock which was I wasn't really ready for I I was not ready because I you would be You'd be playing in a small group. You'd be playing in big band four times a week. You had trumpet lessons. I had other trumpet lessons with uh, Don Jacoby, who was not really associated with the school, but was a legendary trumpet player that, that all the cats who were into becoming commercial or jazz musicians were all studying with Don Jacoby. So it was too much. I, I, it was, I was not ready to be playing that much. You know. But I got through it. <laughs> probably ended up doing a bad job on in the one o'clock and on my gig you know on the weekends but uh, uh, I just couldn't walk away from either one you know yeah how, how did that change when you graduated well at you know then I that band kind of folded up and we started working with uh, and I say we uh, uh, I was working a lot with a, the lead alto player of the one o'clock band his name is Renee Sines phenomenal player and then we hooked up with a Puerto Rican salsa band, and uh, and, uh, and it was now four horns, two trumpets, and and uh, so and that was just a blast. I mean, that music was. I think they were playing a lot of salsa music in that middle band, which was more of a tropical kind of band, 
so I was familiar with salsa, but not having played a lot of it. So that was a great experience. That was just a blast. The The basic core of the band were not really serious musicians. They were they were guys that could play well, who all had day jobs, you know, but the horn section were all school guys and, and we were trying to make our living out of, out of this band. So that, that led to some weird dynamics, but it was a blast doing it. And, uh, and then that fell apart a couple of years after doing that for a couple of years. And it, so at that point, now I actually had to take a day job. And that's really the only time that I've had to do that. I was working at a marketing research firm and, uh, you know, I wasn't thrilled about doing it, but I have to say, I, I didn't hate it. I, I did it and did my work, my 30, 40 hours or whatever I was doing and came home and practiced at night. And, you know, I was getting, I was probably 26 at this point. You know, I was probably 24 when I played in the one o'clock. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I, I look back on it and I kind of go like, wow, you could have been really depressed and ready to give up on this whole music thing at this point. I, but I, I didn't, didn't even consider it, I don't think. And then I, then I got the call to go out with uh, Delbert McClinton. Do you know how you got on his radar? Yeah, I, uh, uh, with a guy, a lead trumpet player named Mark Breithaupt, who's also on that Live from Austin album, if you've ever seen yeah. that, and most people have. Uh, uh, Mark's the other trumpet player on that. He got, I, I think it was like a theater gig in Japan that was going to be quite lucrative and needed somebody quickly. I mean, I think I was going to leave in, in like a week to go out and, and do two weeks and going to see how, how it went. You know, it was all, all I knew, you know, and I was sent a cassette tape and I don't think there were even any charts. So I think I just had to learn all the stuff from that tape. And uh, a week later, I'm on the bus from Fort Worth heading all the way out to the East coast, you know, and, and did a two week run and, Ended up doing it for seven and a half years. <laughs> yeah, and he, Delbert always had great bands and great people in his yep, bands. Sure did. And I know they'd all quite changed over those seven and a half years. You were part of like maybe three different, you know, iterations at least. Probably. Well, there's a lot of drummers. And uh. he, yeah, he's known for having a, you know. And, uh, Hard time with drummers. But, yeah, uh, I mean, he before he found uh, Lynn Williams, who he worked with for quite a while, it, it was it was kind of revolving door with with a, a few guys. But yeah, there was. I guess I kind of look at three kind of core bands: the band that, that was there when I first started, and then kind of a middle band, uh, and then the the band. I think maybe the last four or five years with Rick Kurtz and Mike Duke and uh, and Brian Owings who was, was kind of in and out all the time too, but. Uh, uh, that's kind of what I look at as as the the band that was most of the time that I was on. Yeah. What about the horn section? Because I think they were not, different sizes at times. But I guess Don Wise was on it for for a lot of it. Oh my gosh, Don was on that band. I mean, he may have been on for thirty years. He was on before I was on, and he was. It was it, almost ninety nine percent of the stuff was just me and Don. You know that that's you know you'll see a lot of the older TV shows. Uh, and I, for the two Austin City Limits that we filmed with Delbert, we did add some other horn players, uh, some Austin guys who came and did a great job. And uh, without really much being arranged, you know, uh, John Blondell, this great trombone player, you know, was really good at picking out the third part, you know, and Mark and I kind of split up the trumpet parts. And then we added Jeff Coffin, I believe, played Barry on that second one. I'm not sure who else might have been on that, if we had Blondell back on that or not. But uh, yeah, that that album's been heard by a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, that was at a time where he didn't really do a whole lot of studio work, and I think that was the first release after maybe four or five years without a record. Yeah, I think that's right. And then he did never been rocked enough while I was on the band. Uh, but uh, the the producers wanted to use studio guys, so we we didn't get to play on that. So, but you know, I've been on the other end of that also. <laughs> And uh, I, I feel for the guys that it happens to, because when, you know, when you're part of the band, you're out on the road, you know, and a record opportunity comes along, you, you want to be on it too, of course, you know. But up to that point, did you do a lot of studio work at all, or did that just kind of evolve after Dalbert's gig? Oh, you know, a couple of isolated projects here, but, you know, then w once I moved to Nashville, which was in 91, I was on the band from 88 to 95, you know, things started trickling in. Some of them were with Delbert. We recorded uh, several little shorts for ESPN, which played on ESPN forever. 
10, 15 years, I'll bet. I, I, hear, I could hear myself on Sports Center every morning. Yeah. <laughs> and then we were the house man for the ESPY Awards the first three years they, they did that up in New York City. So that was quite an experience for a band that was basically a, a bar band, you know. I mean, we, we would play outdoor festivals and stuff too, but, when, uh, you know, now all of a sudden we're playing 30-second walk-ons for, you know, mega movie stars and stuff like that, you know. But we did a good job on it. There was a couple funky moments, but uh, overall, I think it went went really well considering the kind of experience that most of us had had. Yeah. So you said after seven and a half years, that chapter ended for you. Yep. What, what came next? What came next was, uh, you know, really uh, meeting uh, Dennis Taylor because the guy that Dennis was working a lot ended up being the guy that went out with Delbert. But Terry Townsend. Terry Townsend, yeah. And uh, so I just kind of filled a natural void there, and Dennis and I hit it off immediately and, and started recording with Fred James. Uh, we did several projects with, with Fred, which were some of the first things that I recorded in town, you know. Uh, like I said, we'd, I'd done a few things for ESPN, and and I started working with Jim Horn, who I'd met through Delbert also. And Jim Horn started getting me on on projects, and uh, pretty soon I met Jim Hoke, and Jim Hoke started getting me on on uh, recordings. But uh, uh, and through Jim Horn, I the next thing that really came along for me after that uh, was was the Waylon Jennings band that Waylon put together in the late uh, uh, late nineties. Uh, I think maybe 98. I think he passed away in early 2002. So I think we were working with him 98, 99, or maybe 99, 2000, 2001. And just doing about 30 shows a year, but uh, it was it was such a pleasure. Uh, you felt like you were part of a family almost immediately. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> Reggie Young's on guitar, Robbie Turner on steel, you know, just a, a lot of the legends that go back to Waylon's heyday were back out with him because their kids had grown up now, you know, and Barney and Carter Robinson, who had met, you know, back in the Waylon's head heyday and, and Richie Albright, you know, the drummer, you know. So you got to hear all these great Waylon stories, you know, from the people who were there and uh, just a, a, a total blast. And so that was a great three years. That was that was Charles Rose and Jim Horn and I that were the horn section for that. And there was a great life record. From the Ryman, yeah. That you did with that band, too. Mm -hmm. Is that how you met Charles? Well, I actually met Charles in, in Sweden, of all places. He was over there, and you've heard Charles talk about this tour a bunch. It was the Malico All-Stars, right? And I think that was the early early 90s, I'm thinking 91, 92. But I was over there with Delbert, but we kept running into these guys because we were playing all the same shows. We must have crossed paths like three or four times in the, you know, we were probably over there three weeks. I think they might've been over there a month. And uh, so I just met Charles. We were watching uh, the Ray Charles band, you know, and I, I, I think I knew Jim Williamson maybe already. And Jim, Jim was doing the Malico thing. And, uh, and that's how, I, and so just sitting next to Charles watching the show is actually how we first met. And then I think that was before we did this Meet the Press album down in Muscle Shoals, which was the first recording I did. And that was Charles and Dennis Taylor and I. Uh, that's a, a small band that was was down there that was doing their their own little project, and it was just a blast. And that's the first time I saw, you know, Charles arranging skills, you know, in play because there was no charts, there wasn't anything for that. We were just kind of, you know, we we were copying a few things, uh, like like we know we did uh, who would the next fool be, and uh, so Charles had sitting there trying to figure out the the, the voicings and stuff, and you know, he, bang bang bang, he had it, and we're recording, you know. <laughs> So that was a really fascinating thing to see. And, and uh, we've been working together for over 20 years now, I'm sure. Did the Lie Love It gig come out of meeting Charles or how did you get that gig? Uh, yeah, that was definitely through through Charles and Harvey. Uh, and I think I might have gotten even a stronger recommendation from Harvey when they were looking for a, a, a new trumpet player. Uh, um, Harvey and I always hit it off <clears throat> real well. And uh, we got to do about first two or three weeks of this year's Lyle tour with Harvey, and then he had to go home. He's having some health issues, and that was that was sad to see. Yeah, and at that point, you you stayed with Lyle for a couple of years? Yeah, I did 05 and 06 with, with, with Lyle. And, and then another quite high-profile gig came your way. Yeah, uh, uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it was there's a lot of times you're presented with some really tough decisions to make in this business, and... and uh, and I was pretty much at that point, you know, if Jim Horn called, I was I was going to do it. You know, it, he had gotten me on 
a, a lot of stuff and it was usually you know high profile stuff i mean at least for me and so there's this kenny chesney we had recorded with kenny and you know i didn't really know him or had hardly interacted with him on those recording sessions but then he decided he wanted to take a horn section out and kenny was at the height of his uh, fame at that at that point i'm and I'm not really up on country music as as I should be living in this town. So the first thing that we did uh, was the award show out in Vegas, which is the which one of the, the ACM awards? ACM awards. Yeah, yeah, right. So we're up there on stage, and we're going to do uh, uh, another beer in Mexico, which was his big hit at the time, and really was the song that really made him want to bring out a horn section. And so they parted these walls in front of us and the crowd was so loud I, I physically almost knocked me off the stage I, I had was totally unprepared for it because I just didn't know you know we hadn't done any live shows with Kenny yet this was the first thing that we had done with him in front of a crowd and uh, I was just uh, amazed you know that that just really floored me so I did uh, four at least parts of four years with Kenny Chesney and that, that was a lot of fun I mean it's not the kind of music that I got into music to play, but uh, you know, playing in front of crowds like that is is just um, uh, an amazing thing to see. Uh, the, the, for me, the crowds were kind of a show for me, you know, because they were really good about lighting them up. They had backlighting, which you know, they all of a sudden they just shoot all these lights on the crowd, and you'd see, you know, these twenty thousand, sometimes even sixty thousand people at these football stadiums, you know, just going crazy. And uh, so that was spectacular. That you just don't expect. And especially with my background, I guess at that point I would have been uh, almost 50. So, you know, at that point you're thinking, well, I'm probably not going to be doing big, you know, rock star, huge acts, you know. <laughs> I'm more of a, a an R&B kind of guy. And I was fine with that, you know. I, I was fine with that. You know, when when we were with Waylon, Waylon was a huge star, but of course he was 25 years past his his prime when we were playing with him. And, and uh, it's, I've just was astounded by the popularity of Kenny Chesney. It was amazing to see. Yeah. Was the Kenny Chesney gig the, like the longest or the most involved touring you you did up to now when you went back out on the road with Lyle? You, you didn't do that many long road gigs in between, right? Not really. And, and yeah, Waylon's thing was maybe 30 shows, you know, throughout the year. So that was nice because he paid us really well, you know. So you're making a nice nut, you might say, just from that. And you're not even really gone from town, you know. Whereas Penny's thing went from, you know, spring to uh, early September. And that was like 50 shows. And But even, even with that, though, you know, a large majority of it is, you know, you're leaving out on Wednesday and Thursday night and you're back on Sunday or Monday, you know. So you could still work in town you know, Monday and Tuesdays and, and Wednesdays, you know, do what sessions would come in for there. So it wasn't like you were just gone. And uh, uh, so, it, it, yeah, it, but I mean, as far as production, I mean, we're talking, you know, 11 buses and 10 or 11 huge semis, you know, it's that, that kind of, that kind of production. As, and that was also just jaw dropping for me to see that all put together and taken apart, you know, every, every day and, and uh, how hard those crew guys work, it's just uh, astounding. Yeah, so this year you went back out on the road with Lie Lovett and the Lorch Band. Yes, I did, yeah. After, I guess, 15 years in between or something like that? Uh, 12, yeah, yeah. So how was that coming back? Well, first of all, I guess the band, although it's changed a little bit, is still kind of the same core or the same you know, line up. A lot of the same guys, yeah. Some of it has changed. He kind of went away from the from the just singers. Uh, most of the singers now are, are, are players, except for Francine Reed, you know. And obviously, you know, I can't imagine that show without Francine Reed. <laughs> but uh, 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 so he's got some really fine instrumentalists who are also fine singers, you know. So that aspect of it has changed a lot instead of having the, the line of, of singers, you know, doing their cool kind of dance steps that's kind of gone away it was was it a similar experience for you like playing side uh or did that feel different than the first time around 
It it felt uh, similar, but uh, uh, it was quite quite challenging. I I don't think anything can really prepare you for playing six nights a week like that. And and when I'm saying six nights a week, it's a sound check every day and a rehearsal of some sorts for the horn section. Now sometimes we got turned loose, but he might be rehearsing the rest of the band for another hour hour and a half, you know. And uh, then you get a quick little break you know to go eat and you might have another hour and you're putting on the suit and hitting the stage you know and that was just night after night after night and i do remember that from 05 and 06 it was it's after a while you know when you you're not ever really getting a full night's sleep it's it's uh it's very disorienting you know after you know when you started getting into your fourth and fifth week of that yeah it's uh it's a tough thing but I, I had a great time for the most of it out, out there, and I love the band. I'm playing with, you know, Russ Kunkel on drums. I mean, it's just a musical legend, and to hear that guy play every night. And the keyboard player, Jim Cox, is, is absolutely amazing. The whole band is, is I mean, there's just, it's, every solo is, is a home run, you know, so you've got that to step up to. And I found it, you know, my first two weeks, I was kind of going like, man, I am, I'm scared to death to hit this stage. <laughs> And I've got a lot of experience and have done a lot of stuff, but uh, that was that was kind of intimidating. I think maybe back in 05 and 06, I might have been too stupid to know what I was really getting into, you know. <laughs> now now I know a little bit more, and, and um, I was going like, man, you know, don't mess up. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm the only trumpet player, and, I'm, and, and if I start cracking notes, it's, there's no doubt who did it, you know. <laughs> So it was it was challenging, and uh, uh, but Lyle was uh, was was really nice, and they paid me some really nice compliments during the during the course of the tour, and and that's an honor because he's a he's a, a got big ears. I mean, he hears everything, you know. So I would, that was that was nice, and uh, you know, it was always great working with Charles, of course. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned the, the time you know put in and rehearsal and all that. And that's something to me. That certainly shows, to me, that's one of the best shows to see for a lot of reasons. First of all, it's really tight, but it's so well rehearsed that it still feels spontaneous when you just watch it, you know, him cracking jokes. And I know that it's yeah. mostly scripted, but but every player gets to shine during the show. Yep. And he is, seems to appear as a really, just really good band leader, director, if you will. Because I just know, you know, and seeing the show several times out there, I'm like, it's just like, it's so well, the show is so well sequenced and so well, you get a little bit of everything, yep. both from each individual, but also because you got the full horn section, you got cello, you got steel, mm -hmm. you got fiddle, you got, I mean, you can, there's nothing you can't do really with that band. It That's goes right. from it's jazz jumping. to Texas swing to folk songs. Exactly. And it's just like, it takes you on that ride. And yep. that must be an, you know, a gratifying thing. for It a is. And too. I had the neatest experience at Red Rocks uh, because most of the time, you know, during the, there might be like seven or eight tunes between the two horn sets. You know, the, the show starts with horns and finishes with horns. But in the middle, there's, there's a lengthy segment, maybe 40 minutes, maybe even more. Uh, that the horns are not playing on and usually we're like in the basement of an auditorium you know hanging out in the in a, the dressing room you know and you're hearing the stuff come through on the speaker that's you know a total you know piece of crap you know and so but at Red Rocks they they have this tunnel I don't know if you've ever heard about this or been out there there's a tunnel that goes up to the sound booth which is only about 15 16 rows back from the stage at Red Rocks and in front of that where the soundboard is is you know a couple of benches where you know, friends and family can just walk up there and sit, you know. And so I went up there, my wife had come out, and I got to hear, you know, a large portion of that, that part of the show that I never really got to hear that well. And it sounded so friggin' good. I couldn't believe it. I, I was, my jaw was dropping. I've been listening to the show for, you know, a month, you know, but really had never heard these songs that well, you know. Even at the side of the stage, you don't get that, a, a good a sound and he's got a John Richards is phenomenal sound man that was a great experience yeah and you you did some recording with him too back in the day yes uh, I, I know that some of it ended up on on the record but a lot of it actually didn't which was kind of kind of because I had a, a nice solo on this on Tickle Toe that <clears throat> but I think they had some 
sound quality issues and some reason they, they ended up re-recording that which you know you never like to hear about <laughs> stuff that you've done being kind of you know left on the on the floor the tape floor but that's that's what happened but they did use some of the stuff that we played on on that last record but that's that's the only recording i've done with lyle now we did do an, an audio recording at the moody theater uh in austin on during the middle of this last tour and i don't know what is going to happen with that at all but uh it was a it was a really good show I know it went really well, so uh, hopefully something will happen with that. Yeah. Earlier you mentioned Dennis Taylor, who, you know, was a friend of mine too, and we sadly lost him a few years ago. Yes. But you got, he was your one of your main musical partners for, for quite a while. Oh, yeah. And besides the session work and some of it you mentioned earlier, he also did some instructional books, and he lured you into doing one too. Yes, How he did. How did that come about? Uh, well, I imagine that, that Hal Leonard came back to him after he had completed, uh, some, he did three or four of those books, I'll bet. And, uh, you know, and really all I had to do is, is take take his format for the tenor saxophone book that he had done already. And, you know, I, I had to write a lot of solos. Obviously, we, you know, you can't ask a trumpet player to play tenor sax solos, but I had to come up with original solos. I had to change a lot of the drills because saxophone drills would just be impossible for anybody but Doc Severinsen to, to play. And these, these books, I think, were geared more to advanced high school uh, players, maybe even college players. Uh, but, you know, the, I couldn't just... So I had to rewrite those, but, I mean, it really seemed like it wasn't going to be that big a deal. Well, it was a big deal. <laughs> it was... Uh, and, and if they hadn't put a deadline in front of me, you know, I don't know if I'd have ever got it done. It was it was really quite a lot of work, and you know, you know, not the least of which was going through the whole book and making sure that every time it said saxophone, you had to change it to trumpet. You know, and so a lot of proofreading and a lot of rewriting and and uh, and just finding the stuff. Okay, this is not going to work for trumpet. You know, I've, I've got to write rewrite this. But I, I'm proud of that that book, and I still get a small check every year. <laughs> it gets smaller every year. <laughs> Is that the only time you ever did an educational project or did you do some other stuff too or teaching even? Uh, I taught actually in, just because of Dennis's death. I taught at W.O. Smith School for maybe two or three years at the most. I, and I have to say, I, I, I'm not a, a really good teacher. And, and uh, I just, in the end, I, and the kids are, you know, they have so much to do with just schoolwork, you know, and that's, I didn't feel like I had, I wasn't a great practicer in high school but I did practice I practiced in a lot and uh and the idea that these kids really didn't have an hour to spare you know if they could just put in an hour you know but but they don't and and uh and I wasn't the kind of person to to either get on them in an angry way or motivate them in a way to you know you're you're either fascinated by playing an instrument or you're not and I I don't felt I didn't feel like I was the person to really try and inspire them to do that. Uh, so I, I gave up on that. And I, most of my teaching experiences have kind of ended like that. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned that early on, one of your influences was Miles Davis. Definitely. And you're now doing a gig that is basically Miles Davis tribute. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit how that gig came about? And maybe also what's your approach of, emulating versus being you know your own in that miles davis context that's a that's a good question because this group uh which is brian zach's group he's the drummer and he uh, he apparently did the same kind of thing out in las vegas when he lived out there and uh i'm not sure it may have been through brian cornish who i may have met you know on one of the big band things in town or something like that but somehow he got a recommendation to to and and i so i started working with them. I think we might've been doing this two or three years now. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, when I say that Miles was such a big influence on me, I never wanted to sound like Miles Davis. That was so obvious. You know, the, the guy that I really copped my sound and feel off of was Lee Morgan. Really? I, I was, and you know, I listened to everybody. I listened to Freddie. I listened to Clifford Brown, all, anybody dizzy you, you and, and sax players, you know, I stole a lot of stuff from sax players. Cause then it wouldn't sound like you were just ripping off a, a trumpet player, you know. <laughs> so, uh, uh, 
So I didn't didn't really want to sound like Miles, but when this project came across, I thought, man, and, and I started looking at the tunes that we were going to be tackling, which were, you know, the, this is the, the stuff that, to me, you know, if you're going to be on a desert island with 20 albums, you know, at least 10 or 12 of them are going to be Miles Davis albums for me, you know, just because of the musicianship, the the fabulous players that played in his groups from, you know, we're covering from the 50s to about 67. So the last quintet is the Wayne Shorter quintet. Yeah. So that's taken us all the way up from, you know, Seven Steps to Heaven, uh, you know, Someday My Prince Will Come, and then the next tune we'll be playing is ESP, you know, or, or Prince of Darkness or... Uh, uh, so we're 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 covering a, a great spectrum of music, and it's just an honor to to be the guy that's <laughs> out there. So we're we're doing our own solos. We we're we're copying the arrangements as close as we possibly can. Uh, there might be a few things that, for various reasons, we're not doing exactly like the records. But once people start soloing, they're they're their own voice, you know. So I don't try and you know replicate any of Miles' solos at all. Uh, but it's kind of hard not to <laughs> play some of those idiosyncratic things that Miles did, you know, when you're in the middle of this whole show. So I'm, I'm sure I'm every now and then I'm, I'm, I'm throwing a little thing out there that's probably pretty close to something that Miles played. But I'm, I'm trying to just play, you know. And for the majority of, of music, I'm not a avant-garde player by any means. I'm a, I'm a change, you know. 50s, 60s, bebop kind of player. And so that fits me perfectly. <laughs> so did it take you a lot of time to prepare for that gig or are you trying just to kind of, I'm not not winging it in the best, but kind of keep that freshness because in a way to me, listening to Miles, the last thing it should is sound rehearsed because he's such a, you know, inspirational type of guy. Yeah, I, and, and, and uh, you know, a lot of his stuff was, you know, the guys saw that tune that day and they were recording it that day, you know, and, uh, and, and I think that's awesome. We usually do a rehearsal before every show, uh, but we only get to play about once a month. So we really, you know, it's one thing if you're, you know, playing three or four nights a week, obviously we wouldn't be rehearsing you know, at all, we'd have it, you know, we might talk about changing this and that, you know, if we were actually, but so, you know, to keep everything fresh and there's plenty of holes to fall in. There's some, there's some tricky, uh, uh, dear old Stockholm has been the one that has been hardest for us to get together as, as a group. It's a really odd form tune. I, I listened to it as a kid, you know, it was on one of the, uh, uh my brother got me a Miles Davis album and, uh, and dear old Stockholm was on that. And that, that's probably the tune that is form-wise we are struggling the most with, you know. Uh, but we're going to get it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, another influence and in something we talked about in the beginning is you playing with, you know, salsa and Mexican type of uh, lineups. Do you get to go there still occasionally? Do you have any gigs or you can kind of let loose that way? Not really. I mean, there, there's, you know, occasional... Uh, occasional tunes that are Latin based and I'll be asked to blow a solo on and that I can jump back and put that hat on in a second. You know, what I actually do a lot of is, uh, is sort of mariachi trumpet. You know, a lot of people write songs either about Texas or tequila or Mexico. And all of a sudden they go like, we want, we need some mariachi trumpet in the fills here, you know, and I, I've done a lot of that over the years. <laughs> But mainly studio. Yeah, studio stuff. Yeah, yeah, overdubbing. Yeah, yeah. So you've done a lot of studio work, mm -hmm. and I'm sure there are a few sessions that, for whatever reason, stand stand out. I know one happened fairly recently, early this year. Mm, I don't know what for, you. I don't know what you could I don't be referencing. Know, but somebody, <laughs> somebody told me he he had a pretty popular band. In the 60s. Yeah, he was with this band called The Beatles. Yeah, Paul McCartney, and that was an amazing day. Uh, that was a, a Muscle Shoals thing with Charles, again. Uh, sort of the Muscle Shoals on, on steroids. You know, we brought in Tom Malone uh, from New York, and we uh, added Jim Hoke, who's a, a phenomenal musician, uh, multi-instrumentalist. And <clears throat> unfortunately, his uh, he, he got to play some bass harmonica on, on a tune for Paul. 
And, and I'll remember this. I mean, Paul was like standing right in front of him, you know, like two feet away from him as he's playing this. But that did not make the album, unfortunately. But but uh, yeah, we had a nice, huge horn section. We I think we did six songs in the afternoon and three of them made, made the record. So, you know, that's obviously a big feather in anyone's cap. <laughs> yeah, so how was that? Because... I remember you telling me the story, Charles telling me the story, and actually Doug on my podcast too. But he ended up playing you horn. Yeah, he, he uh, none of us knew this that he had actually played trumpet as a kid. I, I don't think any of us knew this. I certainly didn't know it. And uh, he had made a joke at uh, some point during the session, just about you know playing the Saints, you know, or just as a joke. And you guys, well, why don't you guys just launch into playing the Saints at the end of the you know, song, you know, and, you know, laughingly, you know, and, and uh, so then he comes out and I had brought, uh, and we were talking about Paul Whiteman because I had been given a cornet by uh, a guitar player who was on Delbert's band for a while named Chris Holshouse. His father had played in Paul Whiteman's band. And I think Paul said that his dad used to play Paul Whiteman records for him or something like that. Well, anyway, Paul comes out and we were, you know, either had finished a take and, or we're taking a break and he just picks up my cornet and starts playing when the saints come marching in <laughs> and very very low i mean at the bottom of the the staff kind of thing but he remembered the fingering and and uh and i of course everybody's jaw is just like dropping you know especially me i don't think i've played that horn since i i need to probably just put it in a glass case or something <laughs> but yeah that's that's quite an honor <laughs> Yeah, maybe you can take a spit off it and, and clone Paul or something. You know, <laughs> you would not believe how many people have said that to me. <laughs> you need to get his DNA, DNA, man. You need to get his DNA. It was like, that's some pretty good DNA. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also interesting to see, you know, that history. And I don't think that's a very common, you know, common fact. I think I certainly knew that his dad was a you know, jazz guy or, you know, orchestra type of guy. Right. Uh, dance orchestra. And uh, so that's that's neat to learn that. That's the story I certainly, you know, just when Charles told me first, he's like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I just, I, I didn't really ask him, but I wonder if he actually still picks it up or whether he's just remembers enough, you know, that he can just pick the thing up and, and play a tune like that. That's a, That was a really neat. And he was a great guy to work with. There was a... a you know, I, th I think it's safe for me to tell this, that uh, I slept a little bit before we flew out to L.A., but some of the guys didn't sleep at all. And these are experienced, you know, studio professionals. But the idea of working with the Beatles was, or a Beatle, you know, was 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 huge. I mean, none of, nobody's <laughs> nobody's worked with a, a Beatle except for uh, Tom Malone. I'm sure Tom slept fine. You know, after doing a thousand Letterman shows, I don't think there's too much that could, could uh, shake Tom Malone. But so we 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 flew out to L.A. with all our stuff, and the reason the only reason I had that cornet was because everybody was bringing every instrument that they owned. I mean, Tom Malone probably bought twelve different instruments because he plays everything, and Jim Hoke had brought several instruments, and we had, you know, clarinets, we had flutes, we had everything you could have. So I felt like well, I'm at least going to have a cornet in case you know we get into some kind of funky beetly kind of uh, horn thing. You know, <laughs> you never know, and. Uh, and uh, I'm sure Tom had his piccolo trumpet, and uh, so we were we were covered for everything, and uh, so you know we we did have the next night, and I think you know that's part of the deal. You know, is is all my stuff going to arrive, you know, with me? Is it all still going to be playable with me? You know, so I think everybody got a better night's sleep the night before the actual session, but the night before we went to L.A., I, I, there was a a lot of nervousness going on. But as as soon as Paul walked in the room. Everybody was put at ease. I mean, it was he was just like a regular, regular guy, and and the thing couldn't have gone better. You know? Yeah, and uh, you're on that first single too. I mean, it's a song yeah. that actually is being heard too, yeah. which I think is a cool thing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And, yeah. And uh, I bet it's you know probably hard to top that experience as far of as the you know star power that kind of goes with it. But are there any other sessions that for one reason or another, stick out if you if you think back. <laughs> well, uh, we uh, it was Jim Hoke and I played on Michael McDonald's wife's recording, 
And I don't know if that's even been released, but at some point they said, hey, would you guys want some coffee or something? And uh, so, so, yeah, I have some coffee, you know. And, and uh, so <laughs> in into the, the, the booth where we're recording walks Michael McDonald carrying two cups of coffee. You know, <laughs> I wish, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't ever do this, but I kind of wish somehow I'd been able to take a picture of Michael McDonald bringing me coffee. I, I think that would have been pretty cool. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'll, I've done so many recordings, but, you know, the sad thing is, uh, uh, you know, they tend to drop out of your mind rather quickly because it's usually only a part of a day, you know, uh, uh, pretty rare that we're doing anything for, for three days. But uh, if something pops into mind, you were also asking about some earlier memories. And of course, the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show were some of my earliest. And, and those albums, uh, uh, my brothers and some neighborhood friends, you know, their fathers had built us, you know, guitars, you know, out of plywood, you know, and, and, and a drum set out of buckets and stuff. And we would put on the Beatles records and we would, you know, be the Beatles. That's, you know, about as early a musical memory as I as I have, and so you know, all this time later to work with Paul McCartney is, is, uh, is really something. <laughs> yeah, and as far as session, also, you guys a lot of the time not even get to meet the artists, or certainly not there when the tracking happens. Which means, you know, almost the session itself is somewhat of a different experience for you guys because it's more about me coming in, me playing the part, me going home, yep. rather than. The Paul McCartney experience, where it was actually that extent. For yeah. example, like let's say you played on some of those recent Buddy Guy releases. Right. But you might have never met Buddy Guy. Have not yet. I I, I want that to change. <laughs> Buddy, if you're out there listening, <laughs> get the Muscle Shoals horns out on your show. I, I would love to do that. I've, I've seen him live. Um, I'm trying to think. I'm 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 leaving some stuff out there that I'm sure because I would I'd say it's about fifty fifty that the artist is there. You know, uh, about half the time they're not, you know, and, and obviously they got things to do. And, and the horns are usually something that's, you know, sort of the last thing put on a record. Maybe background vocals might even come in after us. But a lot of times uh, I think we might be some of the last, maybe some percussion gets put on after us. I don't know. And then obviously, you know, they go into the mixing stage and all that. But uh, so, yeah, I, uh, I've, I've. I've gotten to work with a lot of a lot of great people and and do a lot of of great sessions and it's I've been very fortunate because uh, I don't know if I really got into this but uh, you know when I got on Delbert McClinton's band I didn't know jack about R and B they don't teach you anything about that in, in music school you know and so I had some street experience playing with the Mexican bands and stuff which helped me you know because there was no music on that that gig it was it was learn the show you know from the tape and be prepared to play these songs that, you know, weren't in the show every night, but he could call them at any second. So, you know, all that had to be in your head, you know. But as far as knowing about the whole genre of R&B and where Delbert had really come from, I was totally ignorant. I was, I was, I was out there just doing the best I could, sink or swim. But I met some great guys out there, and they, they helped get me through it. And, and uh, I learned a ton in seven and a half years. Of, we were doing 200 shows a year when I started with him in 88. Yeah, so we met about six years ago, I think. Uh, we did, you know, started with that session at Kevin McHenry's studio. Yeah, now, see, that was three days of recording, wasn't it? Yeah, that yeah. was, uh, we did, I don't know, but I think Charles and I count, we did like 27 tunes over. That's, that's right. That, you know. <laughs> Around that time, anyway. So anyway, and that's doubled, right? Yeah, if you, Charles is doing it, it was doubled. It so was that all, was it was all doubled. Yeah. There were some solos, so, <laughs> so that's you got to passes. blow quite a bit. Yeah. But talking about R and B, and a gig, I kind of got, and we we both had to the opportunity to do together a lot. Muscle Shoals All Stars gigs. Those were great experiences. Which we got to go to Italy, Lincoln Center. Mm -hmm. Alabama Music Hall of Fame shows. Yep. Not that many, but they always seem to be kind of certainly special to me. Uh, my question, though, is, you know, in that particular scenario, you get to obviously play as a member of the Muscle Shoals Horns, but then also with some of the guys who actually made those records. Yeah. And, you know, Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section members. How 
did you experience or have you been experiencing that particular gig? Oh, I love it. And and again, you you end up feeling almost like family, you know, and obviously I don't go, I go back recording in Muscle Shoals 20 years, but I'm not on any of those, you know, classic recordings, but I'm on the stuff that's been done, you know, a lot of the stuff that's been done over the last 20 years and uh, done a lot of recording with Charles and a lot of work with Charles. And and I think in a large part, a lot of that came about because of the documentary. Don't you, don't you feel it? It seemed like it brought a lot of renewed that interest sure back. gave us the wings it took to get to some of those more high-profile exactly. uh, yeah. gigs. And, uh, so, you know, it's, it's one thing to show up down there. Like, and, and I've done a bunch of shows at the convention center down there at Florence. But, you know, we drive down that morning. We rehearse. You know, we play, but you know, when you when you get to travel around and and or you're over in Italy, you know, with those guys for four days, you really get to to know more about them, and and uh, and that was that was cool. I mean, we our hangs with Will McFarland after those shows in in Pareto were just <laughs> amazing. There was eight or ten of us sitting around at a table just trading stories. Of course, Will's telling nine out of ten, but <laughs> but I I. I I could listen to Will tell his stories uh, all night long, and, and, and we did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had Will on my podcast. That had to have been good. Well, in the hour that we had available, we made it till 1982, so I'll have to have him back to yeah. tell the rest yeah, of the Yeah, you story. could do like 10 of those with him. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, yeah, it's ne never a dull moment with no. Will, that's for sure. No, love him to death. <laughs> so we're here getting towards the end here, and... Uh, well, thank you so much for you taking this time and talking so extensively about your your career. Um, if um, a club owner or somebody would, would say, hey, Steve, I want you to put a band together for a gig and you kind of, you know, had free reign of what that would be. Hmm. If you're just, you know, shooting from your hip now, how would something like that look like if you were in charge? Well, you know, I... I... Not being a singer and not being a lyricist, it would be an instrumental uh, group uh, and sort of maybe like, you know, your instrumental group, you know, stuff like that. I love that uh, that funky Lee Morgan-ish kind of, of stuff. It would probably have some of that in there. But yeah, it'd be it's sort of a jazz, blues uh, kind of instrumental group, probably trumpet and tenor, you know, just for the economic, you know, aspect, you know, trying to... You know, even even a, fi a quintet is is hard to book. You know, uh, uh, and probably reason I should have stayed with the piano. I could be doing trio gigs yeah. <laughs> or solo gigs. Yeah, or solo gigs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but unfortunately, as a trumpet player, you're usually at least the fifth guy in, and uh, so yeah, it would it would probably look like that. And it's very tough to be to do a quartet thing on trumpet, but playing the whole melody of a tune, launching right into a solo. You know, you might have a, you'll have the piano solo, maybe a bass solo off, and then you're back playing the head again. You do that for very long, you're you're getting tired, you know, so you don't see a whole lot of trumpet quartets, you know. Yeah. Well, that's where you are at the tenor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that That's a hard thing to pull off, and, uh, and I have done it, you know, but uh, uh, really it's nice to have that, nice to have that tenor, uh, extra voice. And if nothing else, for just a, a musical variety, too, you know, another another voice, another sound, you know, and you get at least a two-part harmony in your in your melodies, you know. Yeah. So you mentioned that band, we call it Funky Chester, which is actually derived from a tune you wrote. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like you and Doug Moffat, Charles Rose, Lynn uh -huh. Williams, Paula Sola, and uh, we haven't been doing that many things, but I hope we can do some more in the future. And so Funky Chester is one of your songs. We've, we've been recording another one. How, you know, you said you're not a lyricist and you're not a singer, but you've written some instrumentals over the years. Sure, yeah. Uh, how is that something you, you kind of appreciate and like doing? Is it something you do often or is something to just kind of whenever the opportunity it, it, You know, unfortunately, I, I, I need the opportunity to present itself and then I can write for that opportunity. Me just sitting around the house, oh, I'm going to write a tune. You know, it's, it's never, never going to happen. I, you know, I'm, I'm busy enough just staying on top of the horn and, you know, taking care of the, the house and the dogs and, you know, but uh, uh, yeah. So like with uh, Funky Chester, 
there was a great band in town called Grooveyard with the, you know, John Cowan singing. It was me and Dennis uh, in, in the horn section and Jim Hoke. Uh, uh, Greg Morrow on drums, you know, uh, Mike Brignardello on bass, uh, uh, just a, a Reese Winans on keyboards, if I'm leaving. Oh, Pat Buchanan on guitar. I mean, just a, a powerhouse of a, of a band doing, you know, blue-eyed soul kind of stuff. And uh, so the people from Bose, I think, just walked into Third Lindsley and, and, and heard a show and decided they wanted to record us. And then right, I mean, I don't think it was two days before the recording session, they said, we'd, we'd like one instrumental. And so I sat at the piano and the thing just wrote itself in, in less than an hour. I, I pretty much think I, it was done. And uh, it ended up being put in Bose kiosks all around the, the country. As a, a just, you, you go into these kiosks and demonstrate their surround sound thing, I think is what it was. And they even flew us up to Boston. We played for the company up there, uh, did a, a little gig up there. It was uh, me and Jim Horn and, and Dennis did that, yeah. So that was, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that can present uh, just out of nowhere or something. But, but I sort of need that thing to present itself. Like I, uh, I was asked uh, by Matt Endall to be like a guest artist at the Jazz Cave, you know, for a Sunday jam. And, you know, he said, well, we'd like you to do as many originals as you can. Well, you know, really, of, of the ones that I would want to present in public, uh, you know, I've got like four or five, you know, good instrumentals that I feel comfortable playing anywhere. You know, but I had one tune that has kind of always been sitting back there, at least for 15 years. It was kind of a very uh, uh, Joe Beamish kind of bossa tune. And because this thing was coming up, I finally pulled that thing out and finished it, you know, and I was really proud of the way it came out. It, it came out really good. And uh, <laughs> and the, the title of that tune is To Be Determined because I didn't really have a name for the song yet. And then I started thinking about it. Well, to be determined could mean like we'll determine what the name of the song later or it could be you know okay it took me 15 years to write this song but i was determined and i i, I finished it <laughs> yeah so that's that's the name of the song yeah <laughs> yeah so that's good question there too uh what you know how do you title an instrumental it sometimes i guess you may start with a title and then you kind of try to evoke that on the instrument yeah but i think uh for me coming out of a the blue note kind of jazz background that i came out of a lot of those tunes were just something funny or maybe an inside joke amongst the band you know or uh, uh might even be a little bit blue you know uh like funky chester was named after my dog you know, english springer spaniel chester you know, and, I, and like I said, I wrote it and, you know, two days later we were recording, so I didn't really have time to give it some deep thought. I said, well, you know, it, it's kind of a funky tune. I could see my dog Chester wearing sunglasses and, you know, and walking down the street, you know, to this uh, hip, hip kind of groove tune. And, and uh, so that's where that name came from. Uh, I'm trying to think of... Uh, There's a, I recently stumbled upon a Kelly Cox record and you got an... Yeah, and, and that, that was another one that sat around for quite a while until Kelly put that band together, and then I finished that. And uh, I ended up calling it Winter's Solace, uh, as opposed to Winter's Solstice, because it was a period of time when I first wrote that song. Uh, I must have been right after Delbert's gig, and there was kind of a time there where, you know, I didn't really know a lot of people in Nashville. I started working with Dennis, but gigs were few and far between, you know, and, and after seven and a half years of a, you know, steady paycheck, steady work, you know, I'm here I am in Nashville and I don't know a lot of people. So I think that the solace was writing that song, you know, for me to kind of go like, wow, what am, where am I going now? You know, <laughs> it's kind of a scary place to be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Have you thought about making a record and maybe collecting some of those? Yes, I, I, and when we have talked about it and, and uh, I, I think I need a few more songs and uh, a little more downtime because there hasn't been much uh, for various reasons. Uh, uh, just being fortunate enough to be busy and like I said, staying on top of the trumpet and taking care of our dogs, which have had a lot of health issues. And, uh, you know, uh, my wife has her own full-time career. So, uh, you know, I don't have somebody that's taking care of all the, this. I'm the one that's taking care of all the stuff at home. You know what I mean? So. Uh, yeah, I just, and, and again, I just, you know, what we should, what we should probably do, Andreas, is you need to just give me a deadline and I would make the deadline. <laughs> okay. I'll give you a deadline. And I know that 
Lie Love it is gracious enough to let the band members sell their product on on the merch stand of their shows. Yes, he would. Which uh, you know, just the entrepreneur in me tells me that it needs to be ready for the next Lie Love it tour. Yeah. Hmm. All right. <laughs> <laughs> the wheels are turning over there. Wheels are I like turning. it. Okay. Yeah, because I, you know, like I've said this three times already, I, I just have to have that deadline. If you give me a deadline, I'll finish it. You know, if if you just leave me to my own devices, I'm. I'm just going to fart around at the house and work on bebop licks, you know. See if I can add another note to my range, you know. Which... We'll, uh, we'll add some of those bebop links, oh, yeah. licks into, <laughs> into what we're trying to do. Yeah. So, uh, you got anything interesting uh, com- coming up here soon? Uh, well, I'm already talking with Lyle's people about next year's tour. Uh, so, uh, you know... And, uh, you know, those things are very hard. I mean, playing like six nights a week, you'll have one day off and then you're doing a run of five. I mean, that's that's a lot of a lot of trumpet playing. And, and uh, so, you know, I, but it's such a prestigious gig and the band is so awesome that I'm 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 sure I will end up doing it. And uh, and a chance to be out there with Charles, who, you know, I've worked with for 20 years. So. Yeah. So anyway. uh, and, and the band you were talking about, the Milestones, again, we have we're playing at Rudy's on uh, the 20th. And then at the same time, middle of November, <clears throat> we have another Rudy's hit. I'm uh, playing with the Long Players coming up. Was that the twentieth? I believe so. Yeah, that's we, an Aretha. Aretha Franklin. Tribute. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And you've been doing those mainly with Jim Hoke, I think. Mm-hmm. Whenever yep. they have a more rhythm and blues uh, type of project. Yeah, they do a lot of stuff that obviously doesn't have horns. Uh, uh, but when they do have horns, I'll I'll get a shot at it. I know I missed a couple of things with those guys when I was out with Lyle, which is the the tough thing about you know doing a road gig. You know, you uh, I just had you know a couple of drinks with Jim the other day. You know, and of course we're just talking. And, oh, I missed that. Dang. You know. Ooh, I missed that. Ooh, dang. You know. It's like, <laughs> but that's that's the the trade off when you get out on the road. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to thank for this past hour also for the you know for the just great playing and and friendship over those past few years well, it's back at you yeah. it's all never you know it's a never dull moment around will but it's never a dull moment around horn players either <laughs> in their own own well, crazy not. way i guess yeah so well my hat's off to you because uh uh you have been a main driving force for a lot of these a lot of these things that have happened, you know, you leave it up to the musicians and, and, uh, you know, <laughs> you are a musician and songwriter yourself, but you're also the kind of person that can organize and herd all those cats, <laughs> cats, you know, like, and, uh, and get us all in the same place and make some of these things happen. And, and we're all very appreciative for what you have done. Because, you know, in many ways, the gig itself, that's, that's the reward. The hard part is getting there. The schlepping and the oh, rehearsing and the yes. you know, days on the road. Yeah. So I always, I always liken the rehearsals down at Muscle Shoals to the uh, old Cheech and Chong Sister Mary Elephant, you know. <laughs> and Charles is Charles Rose's Sister Mary Elephant, you know. <laughs> Finally, you know, Will's talking. Everybody's talking louder, louder. And Charles and goes, "Class, shut up." <laughs> yeah. and then we'll get some things done and everybody starts telling stories again you know it's, it's, it's absolutely hilarious i love yeah, it yeah sometimes are too you're trying to you know get a lot of stuff cut in the available time you don't really want to waste anybody's time in the studio but then you have you know clayton or will or somebody and it's like yeah. sometimes hard to say hey i'm sorry i just gotta cut you off right now because you gotta go back to work i know but that's part of the charm or part of what makes it you know, just kind of gratifying and fun on a, on a personal level too. Yeah, and uh, it's always been very relaxed down there, and it's it, they're not on a clock. You know, yeah. it, it's and it, you know, it, in, we are both in the business of kind of turning our passion into our profession. Yeah, and I think if that element falls by the wayside, that equation is not not adding up anymore. Right. So, I agree. Uh, I agree. It's not that we get paid millions of dollars every day that will make up for the lack of that either. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> well, maybe Paul takes you guys on the road next time around. We never know. Well, I think he's already 
already out and has i think he's got a, a horn section from england that maybe he's worked with in the past i'm not I'm sure yeah we were we were crossing our fingers for that but at the same time you know that's yeah it's it's just an honor to say that you were there you know <laughs> yeah there's still three tracks out there that will come out because everything will come out when you're talking about Norris like Paul McCartney eventually everything will come I guess out, that's I true I, I hadn't really thought about that but uh, yeah, I think he's still very prolific you know I think I, I think we heard he had 50 things in the can that he was going to be choosing from so I mean we we're kind of going like man it's it's entirely possible none of those six tunes will get on the record so when we saw that three of them had we weren't disappointed we were thrilled you know, so that, that, that's, a, that's been a big year. <laughs> yeah. So the record is called Egypt Station. Yes. It just came out a couple of weeks ago. And uh, anyways, you know, Paul McCartney happened this year and he kind of came out of the blue. You know, who knows what happens next year? That's right. That's right. And it's, it's you know, it's it's been that way for me my whole life. And, and uh, uh, again, starting with the, uh, the Delbert McClinton gig just came totally out of, out of nowhere and I ended up doing it seven and a half years you know and, and met a lot of the people who have been huge influences on me through that gig including I was wanted to mention this my wife who I met through Don Wise the saxophone player who we've been married 24 years now I met that if I hadn't started with the Delbert McClinton band and hung on to it I'd have never met Susie so there you go <laughs> yeah. so thank you so much for my spending pleasure. this past hour with me and i wish you the best of luck with whatever might come your way thank you thank you back at you this was the 41st episode of the crazy chester radio hour thanks for listening if you enjoyed today's episode please make sure to check some of our earlier episodes and subscribe to the crazy chester radio hour podcast on iTunes, or look it up on YouTube, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or Stitcher. That's it for today. See you next week. <laughs>